I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And this is an evening whose title is The Extreme Present. Uh, Brian Eno likes to say that art is about art, and um, art is always paying attention to itself, kind of the way fashion does, and always sort of pushing out the thing that was art just now, or fashion just now. And also, so it's, it's buried in, in the extreme present. But it is, because it's art, looking in both directions. And so fashion, in a sense, art, in a sense, in a different sense, are always examining the passing show for what they, quote, mean, or what else can be discerned in all of this stuff pouring past. And one of the very best at doing that is the speaker tonight, Doug Copeland. Stuart, thank you very much for that. Uh, what a pleasure to be here in this building with astonishing acoustics. It's a real treat. I'm going to try and project. I have this voice which sometimes does not stick to eardrums. So <clears throat> if, you, if I do become mumbly, uh, you're welcome to channel my mother and say, you're mumbling, and I will stop. Uh, here we are tonight at the long... Now, welcome. Um, I got thinking about the two expressions, long now and extreme present. And I realized I don't quite know the definitive meaning of long now. So Stuart and I are going to be talking later tonight. And that will be my first question to ourselves, which is, what is long now? Long now is the extreme present. What is the extreme present? In a short form, this is the extreme present, where you have the future and the present coexisting. I was born in 1961, and a lot of my sensibility was informed by the dystopic sci-fi uh, film and TV of the 70s. Uh, and growing up, the future is always 2000, and by 2000, it would be like a Charlton Heston movie. There would be no water, no oil, no food, no anything, and then 2000 came and went. And then we got smartphones, and then we got Google, and then suddenly the future, which was always out there in the horizon, began getting closer and closer and closer. And suddenly I realized that we're inside it. And it's this strange, tingly sense that we all kind of know, but we're going to discuss tonight through various uh, channels. I thought I'd start with some art projects I do. Since about 2000, I've been doing uh, art projects using all sorts of medium media and in all sorts of ways. You might say that art is about space and that writing is about time. Sometimes there are hybrid forms like film or TV or what have you, but that's sort of one rule of thumb. Here is a project, and this began um, 
I was in the National Building Museum in Washington a few summers ago, and there was a show there. And upstairs, there was this exhibition called Lego Towers, and they had uh, the Patronus Towers. They had a, uh, uh, Empire State Building, the usual suspects. So I walked through Dum to Dum, and then they had these big bins filled with Lego of all type. And kids would sit in there, and they would make something, usually about this big. And then the parents would be, come on, we're off to see the uh, Lincoln Memorial. And they'd have to dump what they made in the bins. And then the next group of kids would come in, and they would like, pile the structures on top of each other, forming these fantastically counterintuitive uh, totems. And so here, what I did, we had a number of events at the Vancouver Art Gallery. One was called Cocktails and Lego. And adults came in, and we had a beverage sponsor. And uh, people made these forms. And then we had afternoon builds with children. But for me, every module you see up there usually represents about three hours of someone's time. And, uh, and then once these were all made, I just stitched them together to create a language for doing that. So I look at this. This is sort of like a, uh, more of a time code of a certain period in my life. The nests. Uh, these are uh, hornet and wasp nests that have been bundled together and just put up in the wall. And they have this wonderful sort of 19th century trompe l'oeil feeling, like pito, say. And so I got to thinking about evolutionary time and biological time, and then there's cultural time. And I got to thinking, well, what if, well, my cousin, he's an entomologist, we began thinking, what if we could trick uh, bees or hornets into making colored bees' nests, and we couldn't figure out a way of doing it. So I actually went into my own books and began chewing them up and then spinning them out and turning them into the nest that you see here. And uh, as you can see, they have a sort of museum of natural history feeling to them. Um, I would do these books. I would watch Law and Order, the TV show I was addicted, and I would chew the pages into pellets and. It got really bad. I burnt out my saliva ducts. I'm never, ever allowed to chew a piece of paper ever again. <laughs> but I think this is just sort of one way of looking at uh, the opposite of the extreme present. Maybe this is actually the long now that we're seeing here. <laughs> and then... Um, now, what I thought I would do here is I, I'm going to read. It's wonderful to be here, uh, and I'm not selling a new book or anything. I'm just here to talk and to think out loud. And I'm going to read out a very short piece uh, that I wrote. I write a column for the uh, uh, Financial Times Weekend magazine. I've been doing that for a few years. And so we're talking about time. And this is uh, last summer in a London hotel's breakfast room. I was reading the Times while waiting for my ride to show up. And what, without thinking much about it, I looked at the top of the page to see what time of day it was, and I blinked. Oh, okay, Doug, the top of a page is not a toolbar. You seem to have crossed some sort of new line with technology. And this experience is what I call a future blip, a small haiku-like moment when it dawns on you that you're no longer in the past. Another blip. A few days ago, I walked around the house looking for a newspaper so I could pack a box. I realized I didn't have any newspaper. I hadn't had newspapers in a while and ended up using a uh, newspaper left in a studio trash can that came in boxes from eBay purchases. <laughs> and then finally today, I was wondering what it would be like to live in Antarctica. So I 
googled Antarctica and the word party. <laughs> I put in the word party because it would probably take me to the blog of someone younger and more likely to be posting images online. And I was right, and I've now learned that hipsters are starting to colonize the final continent. <laughs> now, it is incontestable that we are collectively rebuilding the way that we process information. For example, notice that when we tell them about an idea, they want, we want them to search, research later, we don't focus on the idea so much as how to search for it. Search words establish future locatability. When you get home, just Google Mother Teresa lawsuit and topless, and you'll find out what you're looking for right away. <laughs> now, the way we are collectively redefining searchability is indeed a reflection on the way we now collectively file away information in our brains or the ways that we don't. One of the great joys of life is that we're all getting much better at knowing what it is we no longer need to know. Freedom from memorization. And having said this, there's a part of me that misses being able to bullshit people at dinner parties uh, without having the iPad come out before dessert to sink an urban legend or debunk a stretched truth. I, I wonder if nostalgia for the 20th century brain is a waste of time. Uh, while I may sometimes miss my pre-internet brain, I certainly don't want it back. You know, everyone's quick to dump on new technologies, but how quickly we forget a two-hour trek to the local library in the early 1990s to find something as mundane as a single tradesman's phone number for a city 20 miles away. How cavalier we are when we say, well, let me just quickly Google that. What we've really just said is, let me instantaneously consult with the sum total of accumulated human knowledge. It'll just take two shakes. When I was in art school, I was a ticket collector on Tuesday nights at the local rep theater. And this was 1983, long before VHS. And because of my ticket stint, I got in free to see all the movies. And I made a point of seeing as many as I could. They changed every two nights, and the fair tended to be upscale. And I became an, an unwitting trove of information on Lena Wertmuller and was able to see gems like the Garden of the Finzi Contenis and Aguirre, The Wrath of God a decade before they became a staple at video stores. Three decades later, I was in a gas station in central British Columbia and saw a generic Canadian country hoser in red and black plaid renting a DVD copy of Kagamusha at the counter. And I was impressed, but even out in the sticks, there existed a need for art house films. And well, my hoser's friend uh, asked him why he was renting Kagamusha, and he said, um, I think it's like a really good kung fu movie. So let's do the math. Probably five movies a week for four-ish years in art school makes about a thousand movies. At the same time, I saw as many first-run movies as anyone else. And then add on the appalling amount of television I watched, as well as the music I consumed, well into thousands and thousands of hours of media devoured during art school alone. Don't forget books, too, and magazines. And then add three decades more of this sort of cultural consumption. For someone born in 1991, three decades after me, even if they spent every moment of their waking life trying to catch up to my media consumption, uh, by the way, that's a terrible idea, uh, it would be futile, especially since my rate of consumption continues as high as ever. So what then gets lost and what gets kept? Wheat and chaff and all of that. It said that Goethe 
was the last human being who knew everything about the world that it was possible to learn at that time. And in that sense, Gouda was like a proto-internet, but now he lives on in, my 2 in a 2.0 version called the cloud. And we're all now Gouda. And again, I miss my pre-internet brain, but I'm rapidly forgetting it too. And I wrote that about a year ago, and the thing between then and now is I actually have forgotten my internet brain. I have no idea what it felt like to me, me back then. This, by the way, is a book called BitRot, which is a term used in archiving about when digital files spontaneously just dissolve, the electrons float away or what have you. And uh, I realized about five years ago that uh, the world was changing a lot faster than I was changing and that I had to get my act together and really go out there and change the way I was looking at the world, writing about the world, experiencing and interpreting it. And so uh, these are some other works that come from this sort of investigation. This is the QR series. Um, these are very, very large canvases. Uh, they're acrylic on linen and they're six by six and of course they're QR codes. And these paintings were Notionally, they were about things, you probably can't read that, I'm sorry, things that you would say to a person a hundred years before you were born or a person a hundred years after you were born. And so station statements about life or death or how it felt to be alive here on earth. And after a while they became almost like secular prayers. And so the whole series was going off to Shanghai, to my dealer there. And... Uh, and we were going to call it basically a show about time travel. And that was in April 19, uh, 2011, God. And so I open my email in the morning and my dealer sends me this. <laughs> um, I, I just find it astonishing how you could actually ban time travel. Um, so... Uh, and in the end, the show ended up going to China, and uh, I, can, I guess what they didn't want to have happening in China is ideology from one era sort of cross-contaminating another. Um, China's just weird. <laughs> uh, now I'm going to read another piece for you here. Uh, I've spent much of my life waiting for the future to happen, yet I've never really felt like we were there. And then in this past year, it's almost instantly become impossible to deny that we are now all magically and collectively living in that far-off place we once called the future. It's here, and it feels odd. It, it feels like that magical moment when someone's pulled a practical joke on you, but you just haven't quite realized it yet, what's going on. And we keep on waiting for the reveal, but it is always going to be imminent and will never quite happen. I think that's the future. Uh, what was it that we pulled that pulled us out of the present and dumped us into this future? Was it too much change too quickly? Uh, one too many friends showing us a cool new app that cost 99 cents and eliminates thousands of jobs in what remains of the industrial heartlands? Maybe it was too much freakish weather that put us into the future. Or maybe it was texting, almost entirely replacing speaking on the phone. Or maybe it was Angelina Jolie's preemptive mastectomy, or maybe it was an adolescent comedy about North Korea almost triggering a nuclear war. <laughs> or maybe it was Charlie Hebdo, or 
I mean, how odd that much of what defines the future is the forced realization that there are many people who don't want a future and who don't want the future, they instead want eternity. Now, I feel like I'm in the future when I see something cool and the time lag between seeing it and reaching for my iPhone camera is down to about two seconds, as opposed to 30 seconds it would have taken me a few years back. I feel like I'm in the future whenever I look for images of things online and half the ones I see are watermarked and for sale. I feel like I'm in the future when I daydream of binging on season four of House of Cards, my new laptop that weighs nothing and never overheats, and its battery goes on for ages. How long is this weird sensation of futurosity going to last? Is it temporary? Maybe society will go through a spontaneous technological lull, allowing the insides of our brains to take a time holiday and feel like we're back in 1995, not 2015. But that's probably not going to happen, ever. Is it healthy to live in the future? I suspect not. I really don't think that we're not really built for permanent high-speed change, accelerated acceleration. So will there come a collective cracking point? And if so, what would a collective cracking point look like? 2016 elections. may not be a riot or a referendum. It might be that we all wake up one morning and suddenly we realize we're not middle class or working class or anything. We're basically just here and existing and only the internet makes it bearable. <laughs> uh, someone asked me last week, in the long run, is technology our savior or is it our demise? And I thought it over and the thing is we made technology. It's only an expression of our humanity, so it's wrong to think of it as something given, us to, given to us by aliens. So it's wrong to think of technology... Wait, wait. I guess the question my friend was really asking, are humans going to kill themselves? The answer would be the exact same answer that would have been given to you 10 years ago, 2,000 years ago, or 1,000 years in the future. We're still around, so the answer is no. But still, this doesn't change the fact that we're stuck living inside the future, where we're stuck worrying about this question for all of our waking hours. And I suppose that abandoning one's pre-internet brain is the only intelligent, adaptive strategy necessary for mental health in the world of a perpetual future. How much futurosity can our brains explode? How much Futurosity can our brains accept before they explode or implode? I wonder if maybe the sensation of futurosity is a mental tick applicable only to people born before a certain window and time closed, a state of mind specific to those who remember a world that once possessed a present tense. Millennials are lucky in that they have nothing to shed, nothing to trigger tristesse and nothing to unlearn. For a recent museum show, I made t-shirts that read, I miss my pre-internet brain. And we photographed them on 17-year-old models. <laughs> I try to imagine a world without a present tense. The, uh, the, the millennial world where time is a per perpetual five seconds from now. And if I squint my brain, for lack of a better analogy, I can almost sort of get it right. I mean, those pioneers I talked about, those pioneers who 
settled the continent, leaving behind them a trail of abandoned pianos and sofas and wooden dressers. They were shedding weight in order to progress towards what they knew to be their inevitable destiny. And I remember once reading of pioneers trapped in a forest fire, lying submerged in a swamp and breathing the air through reeds while what remained of the past went up in ashes. And that's what I feel like right now, sort of submerged in the mud, waiting for the fire to pass, waiting to emerge into a world that is lighter, fantastically different, and quite possibly starting over from scratch. I'm going to show you a few more things here. I went to art school in 80 to 84 uh, in Vancouver in Canada, and someone who was very, very important to me back then uh, was an artist named Jenny Holzer. And friends of mine and God had gone to Soho in New York and brought back with them. They ripped some of the original truism sheets off the, the plywood. And I looked at it, I was like, <clears throat> my brain just turned inside out like a t-shirt. And uh, I realized that words, on the, words can be art, su art supplies in themselves. And so what happened then was I was doing an event at a Vancouver nightclub and we had to get people to come to it. So I wanted to make posters, but no one in Vancouver walks. Uh, everyone drives a car. So what do you put out there uh, on a piece of paper that people driving by at 40 miles an hour can read? And so began as a set of uh, sort of picking up where Jenny Holzer left off. But the idea here was write something that would make perfect sense to someone now, but would just leave someone from 20 years ago scratching their head. So of course there's this one, which we talked about, and this one here as well. And I'm just gonna shuffle through a bunch of these, and they're not in any real sequence, and each one of them sort of postulates uh, a critique or uh, 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 an overlooked point of view or something gone awry. talked about this. I really do miss doing nothing. <laughs> Even if you sit on a park bench now doing nothing, you look like you should be getting arrested. <laughs> and this is a variation on doing nothing. This is kind of spooky. Um, Argentina's middle class banished what, about 10 years ago, and now Venezuela's is vanishing. And it's sort of something we're all talking about everywhere in the world right now. And what will replace it probably will be a global monoclass. <laughs> and the corollary of this is um, have an actual skill. Be able to cook, be able to perform an appendectomy, know how to change a diaper, but have something you can actually do. Now, I don't know if you can read this. Uh, this actually went up in the uh, uh, Denver Biennale a few years back. It went up one week before Detroit went bankrupt. And everyone's like, how the hell did you know that? And I say, you don't need to know the specifics, just that's the overall trend. It just happened to be right on target. And And I think I mean, some like 1.5% of the populace is in, in jail right now. And there's this weird sort of looped system. And, and I thought, like, what if you're in jail and you're shopping on eBay? And it seemed like sort of the most modern thing you could possibly do. 
This one can get you in trouble in certain parts of the world. It's true. Unhealthy people, they consume more medical services, they eat more food, they drive their cars longer. Uh, they basically, they're great for capitalism. Spooky. This is a process I call denarration. It is, for someone like myself, born in 1961, you, I grew up with the sense that, well, you're, you're born, your life has a, a narrative thrust, it has high points, low points, and when you die, it's had a, you've had a, a story, so to speak. And I think what's happening to replace that is that you have people feeling more that they're just one unit out of 7.6 billion other units, which I think if you're from 1961 and me is a little bit of a come down, but if you're most of the planet, like, wow, like you're part of the gang now and you get to have a voice and you now count. So we have to recalibrate expectations in all uh, areas. <laughs> well, we are basically a very ungrateful species. I mean, imagine going back 20 years ago, you know, you can have the answer to any question you want, like right away free anywhere on the planet, and you say, surely not. That would be a golden age for humanity. That's almost inconceivable. And yet now we're like, next. <laughs> this is true, we all know it, we are all smarter, we just feel stupid. This is, okay, the moment that AI gets to the point where they can predict what you're going to do and say and everything. You can basically have uh, something on your toolbox. You can have, you can crowdsource, your, your, you can crowdsource yourself using only yourself. I think you just wasted a minute of your life on that last one. <laughs> okay. um, it does not need to be, what, what does it call it? Uh, the synecdoche, the semantic, the singularity. It doesn't have to be the singularity. <laughs> it just has to be smarter than us. That's right. Middle class is sacred. You can't make any fun of it. <laughs> uh, so I think this actually is the future. Spooky again. And don't we all just get tired of seeing something new every day of our life. Wouldn't it be great to take a progress holiday? Um, my mother genuinely believes this. Uh, a few years ago, I went out, my, uh, my Halloween costume, I got a big piece of plexiglass and I wrote the word Shutterstock on it. And I walked around all night like this. <laughs> And in the morning, the people from Shutterstock in Manhattan sent me uh, like a, a Mentos email uh, from their morning meeting. I, I had a manly tear over that one. Now this is where it gets sort of, hmm, you know, what is the enlightenment? What, what is enlightenment? What, where is it going? And, and is technology really our only link? Hollywood.
It's like, oh, it's like, how far are we from Sand Hill Road here tonight? <laughs> Brexit. Uh, it really does sometimes. Well, this is me with my friend Samuel and my friend Defna. This is in Rotterdam last summer. And there's this big, you can be in the back, the past is now useless. And it's funny to watch the Dutch go by on their bikes. They're like, hmm, perhaps the past really is useless. I'll think about that. <laughs> this is sort of what we're here to talk about tonight. And this is kind of true. Like, the future didn't always exist. Uh, I'm not quite sure when the future began. It sounds like the next Jim Glick book. But at what point did we start thinking of the future as being something that will be different from today? Probably a lot of people here in the audience who would know the answer to that. Perhaps during Q&A you can give us the answer. They just hang out together. <laughs> and so I did this one about half a year ago and before Brexit and before the election craziness. It's like, blah. And I kind of think we are at some weird point right now with technology or numbers or logarithmic technologies. But I think the one thing that democracy really needs right now more than absolutely anything is some sort of electoral morning after pill. <laughs> where in the morning everyone's like, we voted for what? Holy shit. Okay, we're doing this again. Uh, but then sort of the ontology surrounding that is, well, maybe you end up with the exact same vote. Uh, it's just there's more votes on each side, or maybe that means you have a third vote, then a fourth vote, and that's the thin edge of the wedge. So basically, we're stuck with one election. We all know this. We all know this in our bones. And this is kind of weird. This is, uh, you know, the corollary of this one is there's something really seductive uh, in that if an idea is really, really stupid, it makes it even easier to believe. And I don't know what the name of that is. And it's like, oh, we're in San Francisco. We know this. Okay, too bad Kevin Kelly is not here tonight. Um, what if, and this is a what if, well, we had smartphones, we had Google, we had iPhones, and what if that's it? What if there's not going to be any more? This is our end state. You have to make peace with what we have. And then it's like, oh, thank God there's progress. <laughs> oh. Depressing. <laughs> I wrote this one about three years ago, and it gets ever more true. <laughs> and I guess that's where... Uh, this is a project that just came down, it's in Shanghai. This is one variation on the slogans for the 21st century. This is slogans for the 22nd. And it was at this, um, this big the Shanghai Himalaya Museum. And outside there, there's a white lattice structure by a Japanese architectural firm. And then uh, they asked me if I do slogans that come from 100 years from now. And I'm hoping you can read that. It says, we ran out of trees. And that's the sort of structure there in daytime. And here. 
just a Chinese version there. And <laughs> so let's take a break here and think. What if, what if time is not about perception? What if it's not about experience? Maybe it's about uh, grounded somehow in actual science. And so I looked into this a bit. A bit. There's this thing called the chronon, or maybe there's actual, an actual particle of some sort that uh, allows us to perceive or not perceive time. And then I looked up, I mean, that maybe our ability to perceive time is some sort of uh, built-in, something's gone wrong with a kind of lepton at a subapartic level, and like, I have no idea really. And then it turns out that in Zaire, a billion years ago, there was a spontaneous nuclear fission, and that if you look at the data from the, those uh, moments, it looks like they think the t speed of time might not actually be a constant, that the speed of time is actually variable, and then things just get a bit too weird. And I just put uh, those things in just to uh, show I've covered my bases. <laughs> uh, now, what I want to do right now is I want to read, it's a quick short story. It's called George Washington's Extreme Makeover. Let's face it, everyone loves a good before and after picture. Now, even when you take a holiday from technology, technology doesn't take a holiday from you. So on vacation three years back, I chose to read a really long and very worthy biography of George Washington. And I chose it because it was at someone's guest house and it was the one book in the shelves that I could be sure contained absolutely no technology. No email, smartphones, discount airlines, smoking hot Wi-Fi, no anything. And that book delivered. And for a week, I had a dreamlike brain holiday, one that I look now look back on and see it almost as a form of ecotourism of the mind. <laughs> Visiting a place where there's a guarantee of relief from my technologized brain, daily brain ecology. Now, from the book, I learned that Washington was a worthy fellow, a competent human being in an era when life was short and most people were a mess, an era when healthy people caught a cold one afternoon and they were dead by morning. Importantly, I learned that were it not for Washington, there would most definitely never have been a United States. The man's his, uh, historical worthiness is undeniable. And the guy was basically one of those people who changed the world. And Washington also had appallingly bad teeth. And he spent much of his time, when he was visiting new cities, inquiring after local dentists and new procedures might, might allow him to live not in near perpetual dental pain and discomfort. And one reason there's no image of George Washington smiling is that the man never smiled because he didn't want his teeth, or lack thereof, to show. And although he was graced by general good health, he died in 1799 at the age of 67, an accomplishment for that era. Uh, he was not blessed with bodily comfort, as what we can say. As with anyone of his era, he endured his share of slow healing wounds, fungal infections, gastrointestinal distress, and many things that can these days be nipped in a bud by going to Walgreens. When I began reading about Washington's chronic discomfort, I began to have a fantasy, one in which George, at the age of 45, utterly sick of being sick, covered in lice, and exhausted from having to rescue his inept countrymen from peril after peril, is teleported from 
atop his horse somewhere in the scenic Virginia countryside to a class one clean room 500 feet beneath the exact spot 240 years later. Once there, George is given a big hit of Valium and he's told by a gentle off-screen woman's voice that he's been whisked away by the angels to heal his body and prepare him fully for the task of creating and leading a new nation. At this point, a crew of doctors, dentists, exodontists, wearing hazmat suits, descend on Washington and begin futzing about with his body, identifying rashes, cysts, abscesses, growths, aches, pains, every other form of malady, and then go about fixing everything. Washington, I'm going to start calling him George here, is totally okay with this invasion because there are, these are angels. Well, no, they're not necessarily winged, but wait, this, well, think about it. A sterile, pure white 21st century environment could definitely read as a form of heaven to someone from 1776. But a big part of this makeover and healing fantasy is to ensure that George doesn't catch any, uh, any 21st century bugs hence the hazmat outfits. And over the ensuing few weeks, George undergoes a rigid antibiotic regimen to remove any transmittable blood cooties he may be harboring. This allows for the safe implantation of 32 dazzling new teeth using steel post implantation. And along the way, George's skin is moisturized, defungicized, deloused, and is gently kissed with just a slight honey bronze color by the tanning rays. But wait, to Washington, a redhead, and it's true, his makeover team needs to go easy on the ultraviolet rays because George needs to look like he spent a week, well, if George looked like, if George had a cocoa brand tan, it would look odd in 1776. And instead of making him look like a member of the ruling elite, it would make him resemble a day laborer. Moving forward, George's rogue ear, nose hairs are trimmed, his dandruff is selsoned into oblivion, and his Signature, you might almost call it an Andy Warhol and drag hairstyle, is fluffed and primped into Sassoon-like perfection. He's become almost borderline hot. <laughs> and just before leaving the class one containment area, George is given LASIK treatment to correct his vision, as well as small hits of Botox to loan him a slightly more youthful appearance. The garments he was wearing when he was abducted have been dry cleaned and stored for 48 hours and minus 204 degrees Celsius, then thawed, dried, and restitched together. Basically, when George is returned onto his horse in Virginia, he is a new man. As I say, uh, we took one founding father and turned him into one hot daddy. <laughs> uh, this new man is one super healthy stud and he is ready to kick some English ass. The only thing that might complicate this scenario this makeover scenario would be if George were to fall in love with one of his hazmat angels. A twist that could please the heart of any Hollywood producer. George would be back in 1759, pining to reunite with, say, the lithe and sinewy Dr. Jennifer Crandall, a parasitologist with a chip on her shoulder and a quivering, quivering lower lip, to be played by Charlize Theron. <laughs> so Dr. Nurse Crandall, Dr. Crandall hops into the time travel machine goes back in time and finds George, but brings back with her some ghastly 21st century flu, wiping out 90% of the American colony's population and wrecking history forever. I guess the point here is that even when you try avoiding technology, it still drives the imagination. And I just wanted, I just wanted a book without smartphones. However, I'm gonna try it again this January. I'm gonna be using a Kindle for the first time.
And FYI, I actually did a pilot script for George Washington's Extreme Makeover. Um, it's, like, it's out on Amazon. This one doesn't come out in the States until March because no publisher wants to put out any book uh, during a US election cycle. Because publishers are brave. We all know that about publishers. So, so here, I mean, I'm looking back, okay, at time, what is it, how we exist in it. And I look at what's happening in society, and I do think it boils down to three, uh, uh, three uh, conditions. Uh, I, I was working over in Google in Europe last year, and uh, in Europe they have the right to be forgotten, which is a very important thing for them, that you can have your name taken off Google servers uh, in your own country or whatever domain you want it taken out of. It's a lot of work. So you want to be forgotten, but like, how many likes did my last posting on Facebook get? You know, what's, what's my, how's my blog doing? Is it getting traction? So there's that sort of weird back and forth, like, like I want to be invisible, I want to be remembered forever. And then tying into that same sort of reality is we are still in the early, early days of uh, the internet, and you have a, a Egypt, like Twitter saves the day, as the, the, the myth has it, or then the mullahs take over, and this is back and forth, like groups versus individuals versus groups. And the thing about the internet that is so weird is that you would never ever call, call up your friend. Well, no one talks on the phone anymore. You'd never text your friend and say, hey, come on to my house, we'll go on the internet together. <laughs> it would just be stupid. <laughs> and yet, for something that is such an intrinsically uh, solitary act, it, boy, does it have a, an um, uncanny ability to create or uh, 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 re-empower pre-existing uh, groups. And finally, I think this is sort of a part of the same scenario, but I don't know what's going to triumph in the end, secularity or religion. I don't know if we're going to know for about another hundred years, but I do think that these three uh, cofactors uh, will be in play. Uh, now, what I'm going to do here, the thing about the future, the thing about the secular versus the religious, if you're secular, um, you're born, you come into existence, and you die, and you went wherever it was before you were born. Uh, and, well, you may be cremated or ashes. Uh, the world that we're in right now just keeps on going, and the future still exists. So if you're secular, you have the future. But if you're religious, then you have an afterlife, or most religions do have an afterlife. And the thing about the afterlife is that it's not allowed to communicate with the future. They're completely different realms or territories or whatever you want to call. And it seems like the only place that you can actually have uh, the future and the afterworld connect is through art or through writing or some form of creativity. And also, I was watching a documentary, Adam Curtis's uh, Hyper Normativity, I think that's the type name of it, but saying that uh, in Syria in the 1980s, uh, with the invention of suicide bombing, is that suicide bombers were actually promised that they could be in heaven, but they could actually look back at the world, and that it was sort of this weird loophole that allowed you know, basically, people should know better to get young twits to strap bombs onto themselves and go out into the market. 
Um, so it's with this notion in mind that I'm going to read another short story here from the book. Uh, uh, and it's called Vietnam. Uh, quick show of hands here. Who here remembers Vietnam, either on TV or... Okay, so it's about 50-50. Um, Vietnam is the first thing I remember seeing on, thing I remember seeing on television. Uh, uh, I think Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon both thought it would be great to have the war on. It was a disaster. Actually, being on TV helped it go away much more quickly than it would have otherwise. Um, but they had this thing called the draft, and with the draft was the draft lottery. And they had all these ping pong balls, and they reached in, and they pulled out a date. I think the first one was September 14th. And if that was your birthday, then everyone with that birthday got drafted. And then there's a second number, but number three was December 30th, which is my birthday. And my two older brothers like, ha ha, you're gonna go to Vietnam, you're gonna die. And like, uh, there's nothing you can do. And in that way, that's only possible when you're eight or nine or 10, like I couldn't sleep, I couldn't function, I, I couldn't do anything. And it really kind of stuck in my, my craw. And then my, also, my dad was in the Air Force, and uh, uh, I come, I come from a family of gun nuts. I, it was walls on every, uh, guns on every wall, except for the walls that had dead animals, because my brother was a taxidermist, and, and or else pictures of my dad in a jet. And so I come from this very hawkish family, and I think that uh, when you write fiction, you think you're writing it for. Uh, one reason, then it turns out in the end you were writing it for some other reason. We'll get there shortly. Uh, the story is called Vietnam. And uh, I will say that there is a lot of swearing in this. So if you're, I'm just letting you know in advance. Uh, uh, so the story begins. I am Private Donald R. Garland from Bakersfield, California. A nice place to grow up in, as you can imagine. Good folk, and California, California was booming. My mother used to put sour cherry pies out on the lower ledge of the, the Dutch door, just the way they cool down pies in cartoons. And it was really pleasant that way. Please call me Don. Uh, on August 5th, 1968, I was on an unarmed film reconnaissance mission of rivers in the Bong Son region. And I was killed when my Yui Cobra's pilot got shot by a sniper from I don't know where. Uh, the rear blade snagged the remains of a palm tree and the tail boom severed. It maybe took seven seconds in all, but the last thing I saw was an orange explosion approaching my face like lava coming down a Hawaiian slope. Now I'm thinking about what I just said and how Nam it sounded. And that was the thing about Nam. Everything about it was so alien that all you had to do was say a few place names with a few military flourishes and kaboom. It was like describing life on Mars not something real that was actually happening to me, and technically closer to my parents' house than, say, Vienna or, or Norway. And for people back in Bakersfield, reading about Nam was, I don't know, it was like forcing them at gunpoint to read a Chinese menu closely, and no matter what you ask for, all they bring you is machine guns and dog soup. And my death in Bong Son was very expensive. Aside from the costs of raising an American child born in 1949, there were the added costs of my attending San Diego Military Academy, probably set my old man back 30 grand, plus all the US government money it cost to start a war overseas and then pay to fly me over, peel my potatoes, wash my laundry, buy me weapons, and put me in helicopters with pilots like my old pal, Len Baylor, 
taking off in a Yui filled with canisters of film that were to have been processed and shown on CBS TV. Len always got off on that. Maybe our footage would be shown right before a red skeleton or bewitched. It cost the Vietnamese way less money to send one of their 19-year-olds off to war. The math's not hard. You grew up in a rice paddy, you get a Soviet-made AK-47 for free, and it's wartime. That's what Len called asymmetrical warfare. And I often wonder if someone in Washington looked at the cost of sending over people like me and said, you know what, this is not sound Keynesian economics. We we put way too much money into raising this guy. Where? From Bakersfield, California? That sounds expensive already. I bet his mama put out pies to cool on a window ledge. And also he can end up dying in a fucking Yui Cobra crash. And how much does one of those things cost? And how did someone that expensive end up in the shit? This is crazy. Don't we have a cheaper people we can send off to that godforsaken shithole? Isn't that the reason we allow Mississippi to be part of the country? Where... <laughs> Where is Lyndon? This is nuts. Well, Lyndon is in his office watching TV. Lyndon is not watching TV. He is looking at three TVs at once. All three networks at once. He's paranoid. He is gaga. The moment I landed in Nam, I knew there was no way we were going to win the war there. Sure, we had all these Yui's and fighter jets and shit. Nan Margaret came and performed for the USO in Da Nang in 66 and 68. But we had expensive people like me playing with big, expensive toys that could never stand a chance against inexpensive, basically cost-free soldiers playing with lots of essentially free commie toys. It's some sort of historical law, David and Goliath. And plus, we were always getting crabs and sif and deep burns, blister beetle scabs, and foot rot and ringworm, that place was unholy. God, I was homesick in them. Nothing was familiar and everything stank and oh, those latrines with ventilation by Satan. I was grateful for the orders and the discipline actually because otherwise I just cried all day. I always wanted to be a, on potato peeling duty except I went to military academy so they'd never have me doing that kind of chore. I'd have liked to have been peeling potatoes, but at least a potato is a potato, and you know it comes from the northern hemisphere. Potatoes don't have shuddering diesel engines that stink in your face, making sleep impossible, and potatoes aren't yokels with teeth that look like handfuls of dice randomly stuck into gums. Uh, I'm just being mean. I mean, we were just babies over there. We were children. We shouldn't have been there. It was stupid. We all knew it. April 1968, 48,000 men drafted, 537,000 troops in Nam. Those pansies burning their draft cards in New York City were totally right to do so, even if they did suck dick. I don't think, I don't think I've ever met even one person in Nam who thought we were going to win someday. We all knew we were fucked. And maybe Anne Margaret thought we'd win. We just didn't want to get killed. But then obviously, well, I got killed and... More proof that us guys were right. And I'd like to talk to Mr. Washington, general guy, someday, but time no longer exists for me, so wow. So what's a day? What's a lifetime? I'd ask him, sir, why did you think that war was a good idea? Who said any part of this was a good idea? How old, how old are you, boy? Let me see, Private Garland? Well, call me Don, sir. I was a month shy of 19 when I was killed. Oh, boo-hoo. Sir? Nam was obviously a total fucking disaster. There, are you satisfied? Well, but wait, how, did, how long did you know it was a total fucking disaster, sir? Christ, right out of the gate if you want. I can go through my day timer. Hang on a sec. 
here. Here's the, the magic moment when it dawned on me that it was all a colossal goat fuck. Here it is, a telex from March 7th, 1966. Mr. Bob Hope demands that he and Miss Margaret be provided with Sealy Postopedic mattresses with custom molded foam pillows for her impending visit. Answer, well, that's all. I read that specific telex and something inside me died. I don't even think Anne Margaret knew what the NAM reality. I think the reality was Bob Hope had been in NAM before and he knew what a cosmic shithole that place really was. And he buckled at thought of Anne Margaret witnessing the whole truth because if she knew then that would show in her performances. And if it showed in her performances then the troops would get spooked and would have just put the whole doom thing on fast forward. Well, thank you, sir, but what about the other guys like me who got killed? Oh, you were cannon fodder. What else do you want me to say? Excuse me? Oh, don't play dumb. You and all those other guys, women too, for that matter, just cannon fodder. This somehow surprises you, Mr. Miller, Military Academy graduate. Okay, I'm, sir, I'm listening, sir. Tell me more. Oh, Dawn. This is getting tiring. The thing about males from about 17 to 25 is that nature rigs your brains. Don't ask me how, that you are susceptible to even the stupidest fucking ideas, whatever they may be, and you're out there carrying a rifle or a scimitar, or I don't know. Maybe it's not the war, maybe it's just a bitter, fucked up English teacher who wants to poison you by making you hate all the same writers that he or she hates. I used to study English, and I remember those teachers. They didn't care about what was good or bad. They just wanted to poison all your young brains. And that was just English classes. It wasn't even something as visceral. It wasn't even something as visceral as putting dumb fuck rich boys from Bakersfield, California, out in some godforsaken tow rot shithole like Bong San to die useless, overfunded deaths. Oh, I see. Don, when was the last time you saw someone in their thirties ditch his family and run off to certain death in some dumb fuck war? Never. It's a brain thing. Males from 17 to 25 are genetically fucked. They will do anything for anybody and they'll think it's the right thing. They have no sense of risk assessment. <laughs> That's a bit on the cynical side, sir. Oh, brother, young dumbos like you have been going off to war to fight crazy batshit stuff since the dawn of man. Makes me embarrassed to be a human being sometimes. Well, thank you for your candor, sir. Oh, you're welcome, Don. So you maybe think I'm just angry for having been uh, sent off to cynically die in a pointless war with no clear good guys or bad guys where young men were turned into zombies and ghouls and where everything good in the world was covered with a mixture of gasoline and styrofoam pellets and then set alight. But then uh, what you don't know is that I went to a museum once in Toronto in Ontario, Canada, 1965, I think. And it was the summer, my parents, we were, we were all arguing, my brothers were being a real pain, and I simply walked away from them all, and I walked up this sort of echoey travel, travertine stairs to another floor, and into the rooms where they kept the displays of uh, taxidermy life on Earth. And it changed the way I thought. Walking through those chambers, it didn't feel like a a boring high school field trip at all, not in the least. It was the most wonderful trip ever. I looked inside the glass display cases, and they had an Alaska king crab 
with red prickly legs longer than my daddy's arms, and there was a skeleton of a triceratops, and there was several extinct passenger pigeons, and a fungus that secreted this red blob shaped like a soccer ball. And there were foxes and butterflies and deep sea creatures, little dangling light things in front of their mouths, and a clamshell, a clamshell the size of my, uh, uh, my fair lane's trunk. And I just looked at all this life, so much life, uh, life in every shape and form and size. And I stopped there and I thought, well, here it is. Uh, I am alive, just as everything here in these cases was once alive. So what is it then, this thing called life? This thing called life that I share with all these creatures here. And my parents were furious when they found me. I'd been gone an hour and we still had to visit some castle thing a few miles away. I didn't care if they were mad because I'd been shown a small window in time, and time is what we're here to talk about tonight. And I knew I'd been given something precious in my just 16 years on the planet at that time, a chance to share Earth with all these other creatures. It kept me going when I was out there in the shit. And I thought, I could be a butterfly fish off the Australian coast. I thought I could be a leopard in a Kenyan tree waiting to pounce on prey below. I thought I could be one of those stray dogs that loiter outside the mess tent. I, you, we, anyone over here, we could have been a, a coral reef, a cuttlefish, the gust of pollen, a bright, young, a bright yellow praying mantis longer than my foot. I was alive. One more sentence. Uh, my, do my name was Don. My name was Don Donald Garland. And man, this is really hard. My name was Don Donald Garland, and now I'm gone, and I miss you, Earth. I really miss you dearly. Okay, thank you. Say a little bit about what got you in that last story and why you wanted oh, to end with Stuart, it. Oh, you know, writing is not supposed to be therapy. It's not meant to be working your problems out. You think you're doing one thing. And uh, here I was telling you about growing up in a house surrounded with dead animals. And only just then do I make the connection that this guy's in a room filled with dead animals. It's like, <laughs> that's, how, that's how long it can go on before you really figure out, you know, what's going on. You know, and then also, I mean, we talked about it earlier, my dad died a few weeks back. And, yes. And he was in the military. And like, oh, it just all adds up. And, so and did I, you grow up on various posts, Hither and Jan and all that? Yeah, I was born in Germany, over at the uh, base mm. over there, and then more or less moved to Vancouver at the end. Hmm. And... Uh, uh, does it just a very hawkish guns and ammo kind of family. Mm -hmm. uh, and how did that conversation in the family work out over the decades? Oh boy. Well, my dad was kind of like this G.I. Joe action figure. I mean, he did everything. He, he put his way through med school flying planes for the Air Force. He was a downhill ski race champion. He was a scuba, I mean, he just did everything. 
And so I think, and I forget, you're an older or a younger brother? I'm number three out of four. I'm the family Martian. Got it. And I mean, everyone's got their role, and as long as I'm weird, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And in the family ecosystem, uh, but, oh, I don't know. Just, it's been a busy few weeks. Not that. Yeah. More to come, probably. Um, a while back, you've, you've done nonfiction as well as fiction, and in the sense, this book you were just reading from is a little both. Um, but one of your nonfictions was a short biography of Marshall McLuhan. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm one of the artists who was, you know, swerved by Marshall's books, and I actually got to spend an afternoon with him once. Uh, and he seems to have been taken up by artists more than almost any other yeah. part of the society. And he seems to have understood the world through art and artists in the frame of mind that artists have yeah. more than most. Um, so as you took on doing that biography, you presumably already had some ideas about him of how he'd affected you whenever in the 80s, I guess. No. And then you do some more research, and then what happens? Because now you're going to crystallize those two times that you were dealing with Marshall. Well, how did that work out? Um, uh, I shall say, I, I'll be full disclosure, um, I didn't know anything about Marshall McLuhan until 2006-ish. And I got drag kicking and screaming into doing that book. I mean, I was even here working at Wired in the early 1990s, and Marshall was the patron saint. Right. And it was like, oh, God, I've got to do this biography. And I came at him cold, and I realized at the end of the... I wish I could do another biography. I'd re completely redo the one I did. But through a chain of historical and intellectual circumstances that are unrepeatable, he was able to see the internet, and beyond the internet for that matter. Mm -hmm. The only thing he didn't know about was the interface or how it would actually work. So instead he would try and describe, uh, you know, uh, PayPal using uh, James Joyce or something. <laughs> and, and it sounded just crazy to people. Uh, what I got a question for you was like, number one, what was like the, hour, the time you spent with him? Mm. And at what point did it, you twig on to the fact that he was really, he's onto something, and then when the internet started happening, like, oh, this is what? When did it, when did it come together for you? Well, you know, the, the idea of the medium is the message was a profound and an artistic insight. And that he was bringing basically the whole body of literary thinking, which was his frame, to intensely contemporary things like advertising. And um, I think the book that I got the most from actually was one I think called Cultures Are Business, which is consists almost entirely of ads on one side of the spread and then his commentary on what was really going on in that ad on the other side. And he saw advertising as the good news uh, that was actually the main event going on in the various publications that carried advertising. And the news was there just to sort of force you to get onto the same page with the good news of the advertising. He had this weird sense of humor. You know, sometimes your yeah. parent, those parents send you these, like, things have been forwarded like 800 times, like really bad cartoons or something. Mm -hmm. That was kind of his sense of humor. Um, here, so, was he mad as a hatter when you met him, or was he just like blah, 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 blah? <clears throat> Definitely blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, I was working with Jerry Brown in his first administration here and the personal staff and part of my deal was to bring people like you to come spend part of their day with Governor Brown. And um, we brought in Marshall and uh, two Catholics, you know, a converted Catholic and a born Catholic sort of hit it off at that level anyway. And Jerry Brown is a, uh, an amused intellectual about all things. And Marshall McLuhan is, you know, an amused intellectual all the way down. He's like a leaf blower. Yeah. Like spraying. yeah. And uh, I think the fun for Jerry especially was watching a person stand up in front of press and absolutely boggle them, bamboozle them, blow their minds, and let Jerry just sit back and smile <laughs> and watch somebody else take that whole weird press relations process and uh, evaporate it right in front of everybody's eyes. And the press themselves are seeing this happening. So he, in person, was a um, wacky-seeming, present-friendly, uh, bizarre, one of the odder ducks we've had, and inspiring character. Um, he had Does that thing, match what you studied a little bit? Yeah, he had this thing called Christmas morning syndrome, and he, he became Catholic quite late in, in his 30s. And he couldn't wait to die and get off Earth and go into the next realm. He, he thought Earth was doomed. He had that really negative side that I don't know if you know about. I didn't, no. Yeah, yeah, no, he couldn't wait to go to the great hereafter. Wow, okay. Uh, I got some questions. Andy Lee asks, is capitalism accelerating? Oh, what a great question. Um, is, it, is capitalism susceptible to entropy? Uh, hmm. Is capitalism moral? Uh, I guess this gets back to the question of enlightenment. Is what was the enlightenment? Where did it take us? Hmm. And what is the crisis point we're at right now? And I don't know. I, I like reading, there's a, uh, Eric Hobsbawm. He was the editor of Marxism Today. And I mean, I'm not necessarily political, but he did a wonderful book. It's called uh, The Age of uh, uh, Extremes. Mm -hmm. And so it's short history of the 20th century. And he always looked at the history in terms of capitalism and ownership. Mm -hmm. And even now he's been dead however long, who owns controlled production has actually been more, never been more relevant. And so is capitalism getting, is it accelerating? Yes. <clears throat> I think I think it is, and in a very unattractive way too. Uh, and does uh, that shatter at some point, or just it's infinitely acceleratable? Oh, I, I think it's actually. I mean, it almost shattered back in two thousand was it eight? You know, it, we, it, money came this close to, to breaking in half and never hmm. being fixable again. So that's uh, to you of a, a, a pre-shock of the big earthquake to come. Oh boy, two thousand twenty-two. Write it down. Whoops. Is that loud? Okay. Okay. Um, Christopher Alonsi asks, in the past, culture was edited by newspaper and publishing editors. The internet is not edited in the old sense. What's the impact of all that on democracy and everything else? Well, number one impact is that we have this wonderful thing called Reddit. I don't know. Called, yeah, Reddit, Reddit. Okay. Which I love. Uh, what you... Oh. How's it if we're living inside that right now? I mean, you talk about living inside the why asymptote of like every conceivable 
uh, mode of thinking. Uh, Donald Trump, all he needs is a Twitter account, free. And like, mm -hmm. that's his fundraising. And he becomes Donald Trump. It's just, all power, power relationships have been inverted. Uh, I really worry about newspapers now, especially with ad block, is that mm -hmm. they're really circling the drain and what's going to replace them and how do you find a, 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 a news source that is dependent uh, uh, and sustainable and that might not be possible. Uh, so there's a bumpy ride coming up. Let's try another angle on that. Suppose that, and maybe the election in 2016 has is a sort of an example of it, a lot of the non-crazy, non-Twitter aspects of the current public discourse going on about this election uh, is being generated by relatively long-form journalists at print places like uh, Washington Post, New York Times. Now, Washington Post, you know, sort of got subsidized back into health by Jeff Bezos. Uh, New York Times is hanging on as sort of the preeminent national newspaper. Um, Guardian and a few others. Um, but the the major sort of anti-Twitter part of the discourse has been coming from print journalists. Does this suggest that in the ecology of swarming accelerations that you're talking about, as some things go faster, uh, the system rewards some things for basically holding still and staying healthy? Well, I mean... Uh People talk like, how do I get published in the year 2016? And I think the answer is that it's always been just as hard to get published, no matter what year you're in. It's just it's something else is like, like some other wolf is like clawing at the door from some other direction. And I think maybe we're only meant to have a, a finite number of newspapers. And maybe, you know, having tens of twenties of thirties of thousands of newspapers was a historical aberration that was never meant to be. and was Replaced by zillions of Twitter accounts. Zones of Twitter accounts and hopefully New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, or some sort of vote of sanity. I mean, we were talking about this in the green room, like the, the last uh, debate. Uh, honestly, if, if Donald Trump had said, you know, Hillary, people just don't like you, no one would have been surprised. Mm -hmm. And like, Hillary, look at what you're wearing. And like, no one would have been surprised. And that the, again, the power inversion, the, the role inversion, it's just shocking. And, and I think right now, in this month, it, it's almost like, like a teenager that's got like a whole brand new science kit and a brand new stereo and a brand new electric guitar or something, and everyone's just going crazy watching you know, all the old stuff die. That's really negative. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I, tell you, I got a question down here about that. Uh, basically, uh, what happens to nostalgia as all of this keeps going? You had said a few things about that. What's the role of nostalgia in extreme presence, asks Bill. Bill. Where's Bill? Bill, sing out. Hi, Bill. You never, you never, meet, you never meet anyone just called Bill anymore, do you? It's like, like hi, Doug. Like you go to, I mean, if you went to Disneyland, they probably wouldn't have little license plates with Bill on them anymore. Or Doug. Uh, where does nostalgia fit into all this? Well, okay, being born when I was born, I remember the way things were, mm -hmm. and I'm aware of how they're changing, and I'm, if I'm lucky I'll be able to see where they went. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> but I have a lot of baggage I have to shed, and a lot of uh, uh, 
biases and a lot of uh, nostalgia I have to shed. I don't think nostalgia, it may not be of any use in the new order. I mean, maybe nostalgia is just a filter you put in the photo to make it look old-fashioned or something. Uh, sometimes I wonder, you know, with something like search engines, in, in France and Germany, everyone says Google's got too much power. We, we have to, like, like, do something about it. Well, think about this. What can you do? It's not like... AT&T being chopped up in the baby bells, you can't take a search engine and like your France gets pornography and <laughs> Germany, Germany gets e-commerce and, and, and Holland gets sports. Um, so it's not structured that way. And so, so then what happens? So your, your government takes over your search engine? Well, mm -hmm. welcome to China. So, mm -hmm. so what are you going to do? Is it something that can only be left in the hands of private enterprises or... You know, there is nothing in our human history that maps onto what's happening right now, nothing. And I mean, remember growing up, I'm sure you did, every time you got near your 2000, everything spiked up the, the y-axis. Mm -hmm. We're now in the asymptote. And that's kind of, my friend Gregor, he says, you know what, Doug, just surf the tornado. Which surf is like the a tornado. Really, you'll it, it, it's you'll kind run of a, yourself coming around. The, it's kind of Burning Manny. I'm not Burning Manny. I think you are, aren't you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Second question from Andy Lee. Um, do you um, Google yourself for facts about yourself you might have forgotten? Do I pleasure myself? <laughs> what? Google yourself. Oh, God, no. Oh, no. oh, God. Have you looked at your Wikipedia entry or things like that? Um, no. No, I, this goes right back. Probably 14 this, people right now are looking at it and saying this, you're missing things. This, this goes back to 1991, and uh, I, I've never been able to read about myself. I've never been able to, because uh, it, once you open that door, you can never close it. But you can't, and, you know, once you're famous, and I'm sorry that happened to you, uh, you, know, you are going to meet yourself. There's, they hide the mirrors everywhere. Oh, Stuart, oh. Um, <laughs> oh. I, mean, I do have someone who checks for vandalism every so often. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, whenever I'm being introduced somewhere, I can tell who went right to Wikipedia and who went to my website or whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah, the introduction uh, based on it. And... But no, I, I, no Googling, I couldn't do it. Uh, Alex, people are getting stranger names now. Pitlarts. Can you believe that? Thank you for a cool name. If you could teach a ninth grade class on any subject, what would you teach? What are the most important skills for today's high schoolers? Oh, God. That's such a good question. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and maybe part of the way to think about this is bearing in mind that ninth graders are picking up all kinds of stuff from their peers and the media they're using and stuff like that. So you as a good ninth grade teacher are probably going to be hip to all of that as much as you can within reason with your aging neurons and, uh, and inability to forget a lot of important stuff that is no longer useful. Nevertheless, you would like to impart something to these ninth graders that they're not picking up on their own. What would that well, be? Uh, that allows the brain cells that remain to be stronger and more vigorous. Hey. Okay. Um, I think there should be a class called What You Don't Need to Know. And how to look at a fact or something and 
you know what, I don't need this. But no, if you need to get it later, you know where to get it. I mean, I think of the amount of space in my head that's wasted by remembering phone numbers from the 1970s or something. Mm -hmm. That's a very trivial uh, ex uh, example, but you really don't need to know that much. Uh, uh, it's amazing how little you, like, you can get you away with. Are you teach a ninth grade class about that? Well, okay. Um, okay, well, like, okay, 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 girls, here's how we go shoplifting, and guys, uh, here's, you know, how do you set fire to your, your body spray to turn it into a blowtorch? Um, knowing what not to know, I think, uh, I, I wonder if history sort of needs a new branding or something. And maybe just instead of calling it history, calling, history. It, calling it the past. Uh -huh. and, and calling, because you're no longer giving it, calling it capital H history, you're allowing people to be a bit more neutral about uh, what's happened in the world. Mm -hmm. Just a bit more neutrality. Neutral, teach yeah. neutrality. Same, how would you do that? Because <sighs> one falls into too easy uh, affiliations and then gets lost down their rabbit holes or what? Well, maybe a better class would be like points of view. Ooh, multiple points multiple of view? Points how to manage view. multiple points of view? Yeah, with, yeah, without feeling like... Sort of like scenario planning for the individual psyche. No. I like that idea, Stuart. Um, <laughs> no, okay, the one question, since my beard went white, I get asked to do commencement speeches. And... Ooh, there you go. No, it's true. I, I, look, I look wise beyond my years. And <laughs> what, what I get, it's not even from the, the students, it's from the parents. It's like, how do I make my child safe against the future? Hmm. And, and there's two things that you can do. Uh, one is... Uh, figure out what it is you enjoy doing, because no matter what happens in your life, you like making shoes, you like lepidoptery, you like you know, making banana splits, you're always going to be able to do it regardless of what the technology is. Mm -hmm. And number two comes from McLuhan, who used the metaphor of the maelstrom, the sailors caught in the, the, the vortex of water going into the, into the planet. And that one sailor who survived was hanging on to a barrel because it was the lightest thing and that uh, the modern equivalent of the guy who held onto the barrel was the, the need to look for patterns and pattern recognition. Mm. And you may not find those patterns, but at least the search for them will mm -hmm. keep you psychically healthy. So maybe that's the course to be teaching in grade nine is how to spot a pattern. Mm. And maybe you give them 10 articles and there's this pattern embedded in them, embedded in them and you know what mm -hmm. it is, so like, what was it? And I think that might be the sort of thinking we need in the future. Gregory Bateson used to do that with college students, which is he would give them a dead crab and then something else that was kind of complicated and ask them to uh, prove that one of these things had once been alive, just using the evidence on the oh. table. Okay. That's pattern recognition. Well, I mean, maybe we're approaching it the wrong way. Maybe if, if they get the answer right to something was give them candy. I mean, it, you might be overthinking this. Okay. Okay. You're right. Teaching how to not overthink is its own uh, discipline. Uh, you're one of the most productive, hardworking artists I know, um, and probably have a number of plates you're spinning simultaneously. But uh, you want to say anything about what you're working on now and, and what feels like it's coming? Oh, well, okay. I spent the time <clears throat> uh, uh, 
at Google and was spending time, a lot of time with engineers. And it, for me, it was mostly about being immersed in uh, search culture and looking at the sorts of things people uh, search for, don't search for. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a question. What do you think is the single most active internet moment of the week? Most active internet moment of the week? Um, drawing a blank. When? It's 9.01 in the morning, Los Angeles time. That's the single heaviest traffic moment for the planet. And the possible reason for that is? Uh, the West Coast is waking up. The East Coast is hard at work. Europe ah. is probably just shutting down for the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And that's when the traffic is at its highest. Um, I did a project there with a book. So if you want to be in the middle of internet time when it's really hot, I, you want to be in that zone. If, you want to max, if you're going on Twitter, say, that's, mm -hmm. that's when you go on, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think... And there's a book project to do with them that came out of it, but what came out of it more was just this sort of this way we've gotten used to uh, having the answer to everything. And I, I had this scenario, like the worst thing you could probably, you asked me if I Google myself. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the analogy to that would be, what if you had a dinner party for six people and then you were able to hear what they said about you in the car driving away? <laughs> and like, that would be just terrifying. And then... So how do you, like, using that, building upon that incrementally to, like, ever insanely larger amounts of information about other people. And so it's this project, which is it's called Panama, for reasons I won't go into. And so I'm doing it with HBO right now, and it's mm. a, a six-pack, a six-half-hour mm. uh, series on sort of the ever-escalating uh, way that information is dumped on us, and then how bored we get with it quickly, and how we want more and more and more. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what, that's what I'm working on right now, amongst other things. You know, one line of yours that's in a book that you'll probably be able to identify, I don't remember which one, um, you noted that, uh, has anybody ever actually looked at television from back in the 60s or 70s or some point when the established, it was kind of over the golden age, uh, and you look back at television and it's just terrible. <laughs> it's just awful. It, it's, there's, but there's a sort of a wonderfulness to the awfulness sometimes. <laughs> okay, I, I, I That's watch. The artist. What, what, what I watch is, is this like if I'm insomnia, um, I watch old episodes of Mary Tyler Moore. And they're so formulaic, they write themselves. Uh, yeah. uh, I watch episodes of The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone because I know that they had to write them on the fly because they had to do mm. a, take the next one up the next week. Right. And there's kind of a, a, a reality, even though it's scripted that uh, permeates the scripts because they were also done in a sort of quasi-Darwinian environment. They had mm -hmm. to get done. So I like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you, did you watch Mad Men at all? I did for a while. Okay. I mean, that and kind of, it was fun because it was yeah. a period when I was you know, paying attention and he was in New York when I was in Fort Dix in the Army and stuff like that. It's still hard to imagine you ever being in the Army. Uh, Why? Would you like me to run a little close order drill right here? <laughs> <laughs> Detail team. Hut. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Madman. Everyone, every, everyone I know who is a part of that reality mm. says swears that it's absolutely accurate. That mm -hmm. is actually exactly how it went down, mm -hmm. which is so. Uh, uh, misogynist, so like 
it's so wrong on so many levels, yet, but it's what happened. Mm -hmm. And mm. so that's where you have to learn, you know, how to cope with multiple points of view, I suppose. Yeah, it was part of what one does is one looks at, oh my God, all the smoking, how horrible, all the messiness about it, you know, dealing with nature, how horrible, all the cruelty to women, how horrible. And, you know, and then if you sort of step back and you think, what things that we're doing now normally will look that bad that far in the future? Oh God, okay, watching um, that movie, 1945 Notorious with uh, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, hmm. and they're at a party, this is the opening of the movie, and they're both sloshed and like, oh my God, I'm so incredibly drunk. Let's go for a drive. <laughs> and, and then they go for a drive and then they light up cigarettes. <laughs> and then the cop pulls them over and it's like, hey, you kids. And, and, and I'm trying to think like, okay, what in the audience right now would be horrifying to someone a hundred years? Like, what is the spittoon of tomorrow? Like, what yeah, is the right. cigarette of tomorrow? It could be leather shoes. Uh, right. It could be... Maybe it's an anti-intellectual future, and the fact that you're wearing eyeglasses as in the People's Revolution mm. makes you, uh, you get sent off to camp or something. Right. But it's not going to be, uh, or the fact that we all have cell phones in our pockets that is giving us all cancer. I mean, it could be anything. But, oh, that's kind of spooky. Like, where's the camera? <laughs> Hello, posterity. <laughs> what are we doing right now that's like scaring the crap out of you? <laughs> Somehow the spittoon brought to well, <clears throat> you know what they say about spittoons, don't never drink from a spittoon because once you start you can't stop because it's all connected. <laughs> oh. Okay, that's also true about history, you see. <laughs> <laughs> I saw my first spittoon in South America and like, what's that, a spittoon? Oh my God, I thought that was like something that only existed in Elmer Fudd cartoons. <laughs> and that in the year 1900, you could be like at a hotel here in San Francisco going, oh, I've got a big long oyster filled mm. with like tobacconoid flavoring. I'd better like expunge it immediately with or without accuracy in that vessel on the floor. <laughs> what were they thinking? Okay, I, I, I'm on a right, I'm, I'm venting, okay. Lee Kuan Yew wasn't here yet. He fixed that in Singapore. Um, kind of a final question, and you know, there's a spectrum that people keep calling up kind of between pessimism and optimism. And uh, does that spectrum mean anything to you, and where are you on it, and why? Oh, well, they asked George Orwell what class he was, and he said, oh, I'm upper, lower, middle class. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... So you're smeared across it, or what are you saying? Well, uh, there's reality. There's what I was taught was going to expect, and maybe you too, mm -hmm. uh, you know, about just the future being this dystopic nightmare. You know, and here we are, and it's actually great. You know, and if we just not listen to people who are pushing our buttons just because the moment technology is set up so that those specific people can push our buttons, we could actually very easily enter the next glorious phase of enlightenment. I mean, not just here in the West, but as a planet together. And I think maybe the ultimate course is just like, okay, like how to just let, stop finding out who those idiots are and just ignore them and just go forward. And I guess in that sense, I'm optimistic. Um, on the other hand, there's 2022. 
<laughs> to be determined, thank you for coming. Thanks, sir. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.